Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA with me, Gavin Esler. For a decade, I lived very happily in the United States, but one thing always puzzled me and made me feel very European, the American love affair with guns. In Texas, I was once at a gunshot firing range. The woman next to me was wearing hospital blues while blasting away with a ladysmith revolver. She was an emergency room nurse and said the two biggest injuries she saw were from road traffic accidents and gunshot wounds. But she needed to be armed. On another occasion, I asked a member of the National Rifle Association why he felt he needed several dozen guns, including Armalite rifles, a pump-action shotgun, a Beretta and a Glock semi-automatic pistol. What was he afraid of? He insisted he wasn't afraid of anything because, well, he had so many guns. Besides, he had the right to bear arms. So, to try to unravel the puzzle of American gun culture and its links to politics and ideology... I'm delighted to welcome to The Bunker Professor Jennifer Carlson. She is a sociologist originally from the Midwest and now in Tucson, Arizona. Jennifer is the author most recently of Merchants of the Right, Gun Sellers and the Crisis of American Democracy, an examination of American gun culture and gun shops as a means of reinforcing not just social identity, but also conservative political ideology. Welcome to The Bunker, Jennifer. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Could we begin with those two anecdotes, really, I guess? Um, you know, first, the idea that an emergency room nurse would feel she required to do some target practice before going on shift. Uh, and she really did say that she needed, felt she needed to have a gun in her purse. What do, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that those two examples, actually, the, the, the nurse and the NRA guy, I think are actually really great sort of tropes to begin with because they demonstrate, I think, two sides of what is going on in American gun culture. So on the one side, you have the sort of very much pro-gun rights, multiple guns. This is, I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly what your conversation was like, but I'm guessing you would you would you would have gotten a lot of the conservative talking points with your NRA guy. Um, and you know, this is about politics, this is about conservative identity, all these things become intertwined. And then you have someone who is like, look, I work in healthcare, I see the damage done. And my guess is that if you talk to her, she'd say, look, I'd love to call law enforcement. I'd love to dial 911. But, you know, the fact is, it's hard for me to imagine a better solution, given the context I'm in, given what I have to work with in this country, than having a gun. Um, so this real sense of, you know, the collective security apparatus, which, you know, police would be part of that, that that's not something that you can really rely on in the U.S. And I think that sentiment is where we see um, so many dimensions that I think probably have baffled people outside of the U.S. looking in, but in the in the U.S. context have made guns sort of this go-to tool, go-to solution for, you know, really broad issues of social insecurity. Yeah, I think you hit on it absolutely there, because I thought that the woman who from ER was acting rationally when she explained some of the things that she'd seen, some of the things that she'd had to deal with, including there had been shootouts in emergency rooms and hospitals with gang members who'd been shot and bad guys came around and tried to shoot them again when their mates were in the hospital waiting room. So it's not illogical. And there is a, a constitutional right, which we can get onto in, in a moment. But have things changed in the past 30 or 50 years? In other words, has it become the conservative issue, do you think? Yeah. So ha have things changed in the last 30 to 50 years with respect to the culture of guns in the U.S.? Absolutely. That's really where this massive shift happens away from 
guns primarily owned for hunting, for leisure, for target shooting, and it shifts to self-defense. Self-defense against crime, self-defense amid the assumption that, you know, the police are not going to be there to help you or save you in the moment that you you need them most. And I think that is definitely seen in public opinion polls when you ask people, you know, if you have to pick one reason, why do you own a gun? Actually, the love of the Second Amendment is very, very low on that list. It is Number one, self-defense, and then hunting, and then you get other reasons. You can also see it in how laws have changed. And so oftentimes, the gun debate is sort of thought of as a national debate. But actually, in the U.S., and I I know this makes it really complicated for for non-Americans to be looking in and saying, how does this all add up to anything, so much of the gun policy is actually made at the state level. So laws about where you can carry, if you can carry, do you need a license? Those are all uh, state level laws. Now that's kind of shifted a little bit with a recent Supreme Court decision. But in terms of this like 50 year horizon of this shift towards self-defense, what we see is a massive shift in states that not only allow license concealed carry. So people have to get a license, but they can get that license generally on a statutory basis. They don't have to prove a real need. They can just say, look, I want to be able to carry a gun and they can get the license. Um, That's now even shifting beyond that to if you can legally own it, you can legally carry it. So that shift in law has massively brought guns out of out of wherever they're stored for hunting in the home to part of public life. And you can look at the numbers in terms of who's not just owning guns, but also carrying guns. And I mean, it's just been a a consistent shift upward. And that's really important because when you actually look at the data on gun ownership, it's generally around a third of Americans are owning guns, but we see this really big shift in what they're doing with guns, which is carrying them as part of everyday life. And I think that that's really important because it's not just, oh, you're doing one thing versus another, but you know, to carry a gun as part of your everyday life that means integrating that gun into your sense of self. And I mean, it's like a cell phone. So when I interviewed gun carriers in Michigan about a decade ago, they would often compare the guns they carry to a cell phone. You have a cell phone wherever you go, you have a gun wherever you go. Everybody feel, you know, everybody can relate to the feeling of feeling naked without your cell phone. That's a similar sensibility with regard to people in the US who are carrying guns. I think that's a brilliant explanation of something which to many Europeans is inexplicable. Let me, because you mentioned some some basic facts there, let me give our listeners two. Across the United States, 16.4 million firearms were sold in 2022. The firearms industry contributes $51 billion to the economy. The Centre for Disease Control in 2021 said that 48,830 people had died from gun-related injuries in the United States, according to the the CDC. Uh, To go back to the question I asked the NRA guy, which is, what are you afraid of? Are they afraid of other people who've got guns? I mean, that seems to me to be the obvious conclusion here. And therefore, to, to a sort of... 5,000 miles away, a European saying this, the logical answer would be if fewer people had guns, fewer people would be killed with guns, fewer people would need guns. The way you put it, it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy that you need more guns because other people have got them. Yeah, there is something that I think is important to recognize, which is that people who are who are very pro-gun, I think they they think about guns very differently depending on the <laughs> the imagined place of those guns. And so, you know, when I was doing research in um in Michigan, so this was back in 2010, um, yeah, talking about this rem- reminds me of a conversation I had with one of the gun carriers. We were talking and somehow the topic came up, like, you know, what are all these Berkeley people going to think? Because I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley at the time. And so, you know, there was kind of a lot of... Uh, <laughs> 
fun conversations that I had, I'll put it that way, with um, you go, gun carriers and gun instructors about it's, you it's know, a, California. I should, I should tell our listeners that's a notoriously liberal uh, establishment, the University of California yeah. at Berkeley. Well, it's funny because it's notoriously liberal as, you know, in the minds of conservatives. I mean, right. that Berkeley is the epicenter, except what you don't realize is once you get to Berkeley, it's so left that like they're, <laughs> they're not liberal either. So, so I think that's the funny part is that, you know, they'll be like, oh, liberals in Berkeley and Berkeley people will be like, liberals, what's, what's that? I, any, anyway, the point of the conversation is that we were, you know, having this chat and he was like, you know, people shouldn't be afraid that you're around people with guns. We have guns. You're safer than you'd be in Berkeley. So, you know, this kind of sense of camaraderie that we are all invested in the same project of self-defense, of community safety. I also heard the same sentiment when I talked to um, gun carriers about their experiences with police. So in Michigan at the time, I think this is still the law. If you have a concealed pistol license and you are um, carrying and you get stopped by police, you have to tell the police. And like the expectation is like you interrupt the police officer. You're like, I am armed. I'm legally armed. Here's my license. And, you know, it's interesting because when I talk to gun carriers, like, what do you think the police think about that? They're, I mean, the response was, well, they should be really happy because we're on the same side. We're all about public safety too. And so from that perspective, no, I think this is seen as, you know, this is a good thing that more people are armed. And just to kind of close the loop on that, I actually, my second book actually interviews, um, is, is based on interviews and research with public law enforcement. And um, I interviewed a police chief who explicitly said, I feel safer knowing that more people are legally armed in my jurisdiction. So, you know, I think that if anything's going to explode the minds of uh, the your, <laughs> your audience, I think that probably does, because that just is a very, um, a very American way of thinking about uh, the, the relationship between privately owned guns and, and public safety. So there's that piece of it. But then, yeah, absolutely. The other side of it is the quote unquote bad guy with a gun, which, you know, obviously there is a whole set of racialized stereotypes and tropes that animate who this amorphous bad guy is. Um, There's ways that neighborhoods are cut up into bad and good areas. And that animates, you know, where gun crime happens. Obviously, Chicago stands out as this sort of Um, well, maybe it's not obvious, but in the U.S., this is something that just you hear over and over and over again, that Chicago has the worst gun crime. Chicago has, you know, all these problems and actually it does not have the worst gun crime across the U.S., but that's something that um, is one of the myths that's repeated. Um, So yeah, absolutely. You know, the idea is if there's gun violence, what stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And that's part of what has made this debate so intractable is that you have, and I'm just going to say, you know, you can assume the best intentions of both sides of the debate. They're, they're really trying to solve the problem of gun violence or concerned about it. And they will look at the same tragedy, the same heinous incident of gun violence, like a mass shooting. And one side will say, well, there should have been someone there with a gun to stop it. And the other side will say, this is why we need to ban guns. And that is really indicative of just how much this issue is refracted through very, very different realities that Americans find themselves in. In terms of just one specific area, the question of race, one of the things you say in the book is that in the past, white Americans have justified violence in the name of patriotism and democracy, and that is sometimes used against people of color and so on. But there are plenty of gun owners who are African-American and others. So am I right? I mean, is there a different metric for white Americans? 
So first of all, it's complicated, right? I think that this is one of the things that's really exciting about doing this work and seeing how this is covered in the media and the kinds of conversations that are happening now, because I think for a long time, it was sort of, you know, oh, this is white conservative men, and there's nothing really any more complicated than that. And I think that what you're getting at is like, yeah, in fact, you have a great diversity of people who are turning to guns. We saw that even more dramatically in 2020 and 2021. But also even within that category of white men who are who are owning and carrying guns, we see differences. And so, you know, this is difficult to kind of traverse because on the one hand, you want to capture um, what someone on Twitter, I, not that Twitter should be used necessarily as a, as a, as a source we cite, but, um, you know, someone on Twitter, actually, I, I, I think they had this great phrase where they called it the conservative gun establishment, right? So you have this part of gun culture, you know, this intersection of the gun lobby, the gun industry and gun culture that is conservative and it is oftentimes the loudest voice in the room. And then you have these other pockets. You have people who are kind of complicit in that, but not necessarily on board with everything. Um, So it is more complicated. The thing, though, is that when rubber meets the road with policymaking, generally that's the power holders in terms of this debate. Generally, we don't have a broad range of people testifying in terms of how these policies may impact different communities. Um, And I know we're not quite there yet in terms of the conversation about like what to do and gun policy. But, you know, I think one of the things that really is distinctive about the U.S. context is the way that the state apparatus, particularly the mass incarceration system, has intersected with gun regulation, gun policy, um, so that we really have, you know, rather than quote unquote gun control, we have tough on crime gun policy. And there's been some really great investigative journalism. I write about this in my book, Policing the Second Amendment, to really um, unearth how the most well-intentioned gun policies uh, end up, when they're actually enforced and implemented, playing into this very familiar story that um, people of color, particularly African-Americans, bear the punitive brunt of law and state power in in the U.S. Would it surprise you to know that while Americans were buying a lot of guns during 2020 and 2021, which is basically during the coronavirus outbreak and various other things, the British were trying to buy toilet rolls. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a completely different yeah. idea of what we have to panic about, don't we? Well, so that's funny. We were also buying toilet rolls and we were fighting <laughs> in grocery store aisles. With, and, with guns. You know, yeah. So, so we were definitely, I mean, we were doing uh, every kind of panic buy. And it's interesting because the headlines about like, you know, food is flying off the shelves and staples and toilet paper and all this, you know, that was shocking to Americans, the idea that you can't have cheap, accessible consumer products. In the gun industry, though, it was really interesting because panic buying is actually something that is just part of the business cycle. Most times there's a a high profile mass shooting, gun sales surge. Generally, presidential elections overall um, compel gun sales. And so in some ways that's kind of part of the rhythm of the gun industry. So in a way, they were kind of like, oh, another panic buy. We're we're more used to this. But even gun sellers were like, you know, this is like turning on a faucet and the inventory just drained and sales went through the roof and people were lining up. And absolutely, it is interesting to think about like in the U.S., we respond by saying, oh, we need to go buy guns. And even people who didn't think of themselves as the kind of person who would want to buy a gun, you know, I, I heard story after story from gun sellers of people coming in and just saying, I need 
need a gun. I, I think I've heard of a Glock. Can I get a Glock? A nine millimeter? That seems like something, you know, that seems like the kind of gun I should buy. Um, and so, you know, very much this kind of desperation to, to try and acquire this thing. Um, but what I will say is what's interesting is, so I, I asked this question of um, where else does this happen? And why is it happening in the US and not in the UK, not across Europe and what have you? Um, actually, there was another place that had a gun surge, um, Brazil. And I think if we look at, you know, what's similar between Brazil and the US and what's different, across US to Europe, I think it's a social safety net. I think it's a sense of having some kind of cohesive capacity to not just work with one another and come up with collective solutions, but also see that as a, a good path forward, that that's something to celebrate and that's something to lean in on in times of crises. And, you know, I think in some ways, the, the kind of narrative of 9-11 is that happened. That's not what happened under coronavirus. We became more and more and more divided. And I think we were unique in our divisiveness. So there's the partisanship and the political division, and then this lack of social safety net, this sense of, I don't know who to believe. I don't know who to trust. I don't know who's going to take care of this. It feels like everything is falling apart. Well, what do you do in the U.S. when that happens? You buy a gun. Um, and I think that actually the U.K., and I would love actually to, to, to like give, I would love your response to that thesis if, if that resonates, that there were more sort of stop gaps on that road to, okay, this is, this is it. I need to get a gun. Yeah, well, I'm, I was in the, living in the United States at the time of the Los Angeles riots, and everybody wanted to buy a gun. Lots and lots of people wanted to buy guns. But it's just that when you see children being murdered in schools uh, by people who've got the kind of weapons which, uh, you know, I know people with guns in, in the United Kingdom, but I don't know anybody with an arm light, except perhaps there might be some people in special forces or military or police or something. So I just don't understand what can be done about this because for as long as the, the past 30 years and 50 years, it has been getting worse and there's just another atrocity and everybody goes, this is absolutely terrible. It's absolutely shocking. Why can't we do something? And then there's another one. So I just would suggest to you that because you're, you know, you're the center part of your thesis is this is so rooted in American culture and you can't really change the culture of more than 350 million people very easily. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like in some ways it can be very distressing to really dig into this issue because when you pull one thread of the issue or the politics or the culture of guns in the United States, you suddenly realize that it's connected to everything else. And it can be very overwhelming. And I think people often, you know, they want to read books where they're like, here's this terrible thing that, you know, sounds like you'll never be able to solve it. And what are we going to do? And then the conclusion is like, here you go. Here's your here's your package solution. And that doesn't exist for this debate. Um, I think that in the U.S. context, if it did exist, we would have walked down that path. And I think you know, uh, for me and my work, I think, and if you read the book, you can really see, you know, the end of the, the book is not actually, I mean, basically I say, like, if you're going to rewrite gun policy, uh, talking to just one group of people in the U.S. is not going to get you there. But what we can do and what is really clear is we can change the culture of how we engage one another politically. And I think that that is something that as much as, and I absolutely, um, you know, think that research needs to be done. We need to be looking at everything as possible solutions. And, and again, I hope we, we talk about that piece of it. But in some ways, none of that matters if we can't actually get in the same room and talk to each other. And that's part of the, the dilemma that we're in right now in the, in the U.S. 
I don't think that we can assume that we have bad intentions if we look across the debate. Um, and I think it's really important to, to maintain that. But I think it's very easy for us to look at the other side. I mean, it, you can look at the data on partisanship and I mean, crazy stuff like, you know, the percentage of Democrats and Republicans who would be fine if, you know, some significant portion of the other party just died off. I mean, these are questions that survey people who write surveys should not even be thinking of like this should not be <laughs> this should not be part of the political conversation and you know not only are they asking people but people are saying yeah you know this is how this is how politically divided we are so you know i do think that we're missing a step which is that really difficult step of doing the work of democracy which means actually listening to people not despite our differences, but because our differences with the commitment that actually maybe there's something there that is worth finding and worth listening to um, that can help us move forward. But, you know, I think that the story of coronavirus and the pandemic and everything that happened in the U.S. with the multi-layers of crises that unfolded in 2020 and into 2021 is that we aren't there yet. And obviously I'm talking about gun people, but that is something that's true across the, you know, across the political debate. Jennifer, I know this is the impossible question, but are there any positive solutions? Are there any real reasons that we should be hopeful? Yeah, I think that is the the billion dollar question. And I think it's a question that forces us to think outside the box of what gun regulation, gun control, gun violence prevention even looks like. Actually, one of the things that I feel like is one of the most promising solutions actually goes back to your nurse, which is having hospital-based violence intervention programs that are not about bringing law enforcement in, they're not about banning guns, but they're actually trying to stop the cycle of violence by giving people the tools to engage in de-escalation, to think differently about different, you know, different responses, as, as you mentioned, to um, violent retribution in that cycle of violence. And so those are actually programs that are getting a lot of attention. They're getting funding. Um, there's some really promising data in terms of their effectiveness. And they're programs that literally empower the people who are most impacted to solve the problems that they, they know how to solve. So, you know, oftentimes these programs will actually have um, people who were formerly gang affiliated who are now working to actually um, interrupt gang violence, interrupt violence as it emerges. So I think that in some ways, when you think about like, you know, that, that nurse who's about to go to work, but she's at the shooting range. There is something that could complement that and be a different way of thinking about how to deal with literally gun violence in the hospital, which is these hospital-based gun violence intervention programs. Well, uh, I think the thing that leaves me with some degree of optimism is that you've hit on what I think is one of America's greatest strengths, which is most people across the United States seem to want to solve problems rather than create them. Unfortunately, they're not always the ones who get elected. But there we are. We're, we're going to leave it there. I think that was absolutely fascinating, Jennifer. Thank you very much. That was Jennifer Carson, author of Merchants of the Right, The Right to Bear Arms, but also The Political Right. Our thanks to her and my thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, give us reviews on your favourite podcast app and spread the word by telling your friends. You can also support The Bunker on Patreon for as little as £3 per month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how making a small contribution gets you lovely merchandise, plus early editions of the podcast and more. I'm Gavin Essler. This is The Bunker. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Gavin Esler. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, 
The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Jade Bailey and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production. <laughs>